0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Joined in the studio by Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I'm very Feels well. Like thank I you. Just saw you.
1: I, I very, literally probably about twelve hours ago. I
0: know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah,
2: Le- Le- leave them
0: hanging. Yes, <laughs> the suspense. Dr. Crystal. Good
2: morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Yeah, nice to get some rain.
0: Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Welcome, Melbourne, to uh, Barbecue Day. Mm-hmm. No longer down mm-hmm. at the Series Environmental Park. It's going to be the Triple R Performance Space. Which which is, I think, about eight metres behind my back.
2: <laughs> the so studio good. is a hive of activity
0: in preparation. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And we have one of our guests back in. She's going to be part of our team for the moment, Dr Catherine. How are you?
3: Good, thank you. Now, Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Oh, look, it's great to have you back. So um, we're, we're going to, you know, we'll run you through the paces today, see that the girls have got some things they want you to do. But <laughs>
3: new, new science voices. Yeah. Excellent. It's well, yeah. Whilst it's always nice talking about your own research, it's e- even more fun talking about other research. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited to be here this morning.
0: Yeah, that's That's cool. And I'm a bit outnumbered today, but we do have, uh, you know gender balance throughout the year. We'll get there. No, we're all the guys. They're all overseas, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, they, they are. they've gone on trips. <laughs> Liv's doing our Twitter feed. Uh, we don't, we, she's not getting a microphone today. We don't have enough. <laughs> anyway, All right, let's jump into some science. Lauren, we'll start with you. Yeah,
1: so I um, I have to just yeah agree with Dr. Catherine. Often it's more fun reading about other research than your own. So I got completely sidetracked on this the other day. And Can
0: I say that just says something about you two and your research? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, well, no, no, actually. I love my research. Yeah, because yeah, Dr. and will talk about malaria to the cows come <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but I, um, I actually got really fascinated. So I was reading actually just in the in the general news that they've started doing some tours um, to the Fukushima, um, you know, the, the area where there was obviously the nuclear plant meltdown back mm. in 2011. So the local um, people have begun doing tours around there, which is obviously raising some concerns. You know, just in terms of making sure that the, the people, the tourists, are safe and all those sorts of things. And what's the what's the motivation between off, behind offering these tours? It, it, it's an interesting one. So the, they said it's really just about trying to see how the community is trying to come back. But the problem is that there's, there's not really much community there at the moment. Mm. People haven't moved back, and so it's it's a bit of a, a, a mixed one, really. But um, I thought it was quite interesting because I then started reading about some of the science behind it. And what they've actually been finding is that um, they're wanting, obviously, to learn more about nuclear plant meltdown. So we want to know how we can prevent this from happening and, and things. And so some scientists have actually published um, from, from New York in the journal Science this week, and they've had a look at um, what actually happens when a nuclear power plant melts down. Now, the issue obviously with doing this sort of research, as you can imagine, is that you have to have a very dangerous sort of situation for a nuclear power plant to melt down. So, to give you an idea, that the um, uranium dioxide that is in the core of the um, nuclear power plants is uh, actually stable until it gets to around about 3,000 degrees Celsius. So, if you want to find out what happens when that melts, you actually have to have a situation where it's 3,000 degrees Celsius, which you don't get in most labs funnily enough Uh, and the reason is obviously at that temperature any sort of lab tool that we have normally would melt down as well and so this really clever research has actually got around this by actually floating some um, beads of uranium dioxide in a gas stream so they had a gas stream with a few of these three millimeter beads of material and they were able to heat these beads with a laser so by doing that in that situation, they could actually get the material to 3,000 degrees and then actually image what was happening to, to the uranium dioxide using uh, a synchrotron and using X-ray diffraction and I know we've talked about x-ray diffraction a bit on the show before and basically the idea is that you're you're sending x-rays into a material and the atoms within that material actually bounce the x-rays back out again and depending on the angle and the direction and that the the x-rays are diffracted it tells you about what the material is so by doing this they've actually been able to find out exactly what's happening to the uranium dioxide uh, at that, that temperature and they can actually now predict how that will move so it changes its viscosity it changes the speed, it moves, it changes, you know, all of those issues. So, they're now saying that using this, they'll be able to probably improve the safety yeah. of, of the nuclear cores. So, it's it's quite interesting research and, you know, I think probably coming at quite an interesting time. It's amazing
0: stuff. Mm. Now, we uh, we were hoping to interview Sharon Lewin at about Call uh, the Past After News, mm. but she's called in early. I think she's on the other side of the planet. Ah. So we're going to see if we can get her on the line now. Um, Professor Sharon Lewin, are you on the line? Can you hear us? Uh, yeah, yeah,
4: I'm on the line.
0: I can uh, hear you. Well, we're live at the moment, Sharon. First of all, uh, I should introduce you. Professor Sharon Lewin is currently the director of the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. Sharon, where about, whereabouts are you?
4: I'm in uh, Mexico.
0: Oh, ah, right. Not, not, not in Parkville.
4: <laughs> so I guess that is the other side of the planet, isn't it? I mean, beautiful Oaxaca in the centre of Mexico.
0: Fantastic. So my understanding here is a couple of weeks ago, we um, here in the great city of Melbourne named you as Melbourneian of the Year and the first thing we do is ship you off to Mexico. Is that, is that part of the process?
4: <laughs> uh, no, 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 not at all. No, I love being in Melbourne, but um, my work does take me out of uh, Melbourne
0: quite a bit. Right. Now, we're going to get to your work in a moment, but um, it's particularly impressive that you've been named Melbourneian of the year for 2014, because as far as I know, you're the first scientist to actually have this particular honour. Is that true? That's
4: true. In fact, the previous winners have been sportsmen, mm. uh, Ro- Ron Barassi and uh, Andrew Gaze and uh, Jim Steins and businessmen and people that largely work in the community sector so yes it's great for science, great for medical research and um, very pleased to be Melbourneian of the Year
0: mm. what, what does it mean do you, do you have to walk up and down the, the you know, centre of town or anything in, in, in an inappropriate robe or what, what, what does it entail in terms of your <laughs> requirements for the next year as the Melbourneian of the Year
4: actually I think I, it's what I make of it to be honest. I yep. don't think there's any sort of formal obligations um, but I would like to work with the City of Melbourne um, really around continuing some of the work that we started for the AIDS 2014 conference. Mm-hmm. I mean that was a major factor in um, getting the award given the visibility the conference brought to Melbourne. Yep. So I'd like to continue some of the work we started around HIV awareness and, um, and issues related to HIV in Australia and Uh, And also um, sort of Melbourne as as a kind of knowledge capital and um, the amazing amount of medical research that happens, the amazing amount of um, business that uh, the knowledge sector brings to Melbourne. And so I would like to kind of highlight some of those things over the coming years.
0: Fantastic. Now, tell Sharon, what are you doing in Mexico?
4: In Mexico, I'm at a and um, I, I work on HIV mainly in my research in my lab. And uh, this is a meeting of um, HIV scientists in Mexico City that get together once a year and invite a whole range of um, international experts and um, sort of a three-day workshop on HIV research.
0: Okay,
4: now, can and you, I've been speaking here on my own work.
0: Can Can you bring us up to speed on where we are with HIV? Because I know there's a, there's a range of directions that are being taken i mean partly there's the idea of treatment partly the idea of looking for a vaccine and partly the idea of looking for a cure can you speak to those three and, and where we are currently
4: Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, first of all, it was World AIDS Day just on December the 1st. So, um, you know, the latest figures, we know there are 35 million people living with HIV. Numbers of new infections are still around 2.5 million a year, but that's down significantly over the last decade. And the main reason new infections are decreasing is because of increased uptake of treatment. So when people take treatment, which is now really good, um, often just one tablet a day, um, people's health returns to normal and most. And in addition they actually become less infectious so the more people on treatment the less virus circulating in the community and, um, it, and it markedly improves people's health and at the moment globally about 40% of people who need treatment are on treatment so we've mm-hmm. done pretty well on treatment a lot more work to do um, in fact a huge amount of work to do because we, we really need to increase that significantly Significantly from 40%. But that treatment costs money and once you're on treatment, you're on treatment for life. That's sort of the catch that um, you you know it's got, it, it has ongoing costs forever and the person needs to be in regular medical care and obviously in a place like Australia we do that fairly easily um, but in many other countries that's much more difficult. So that's the reason why there's this a tremendous interest in finding a cure or a way for people to safely Stop their treatment after a number of years, and for the virus to stay under control or what we call you know stay in remission, meaning be at very low levels and not cause any ill health. So there's a lot of work going on um, in trying to find a cure. That's the, I work in that area. It's been quite a difficult area of research. Um, HIV is a tricky virus, and has lots of, there's lots of reasons why we can't currently cure HIV. So, um, but over the last five years, really significant interest in quite a lot of funding from major funders such as the National Institutes of Health and a few advances Um, the most important being that we now know cure is possible or putting people in remission is possible due to a handful of cases we've heard about over the last few years Mm. and finally a vaccine Yep, the vaccine, go ahead, the vaccines mainly used to, yeah vaccines mainly is it, primarily used to stop people getting infected with HIV um and is is generally the most and, you know, efficient way we've ever had in controlling an infectious disease. We don't have a vaccine, but we actually have many other ways currently that can prevent getting HIV. Um, and one of them is when an infected person takes treatment, they become less infectious. And there's some other new ways, like an uninfected person can take anti-HIV tablets. A bit like taking the pill, and that can prevent them getting infected too. And so there, there's been a lot of advances on prevention
0: but ultimately we really do need a vaccine. Mm. Sharon can, can you explain for us how it is that the person who's on the the drugs that you're talking about so an infected person is on the drugs and essentially my understanding is you can't really detect HIV in their, their bloodstream at that particular time how is it that it sort of comes back I mean is it hiding somewhere in their system why, why do they you know become symptomatic again post going off those as you say lifelong drugs
4: Okay. Yeah, the virus has a um, a really smart way of going into hiding, um, and so it goes into hiding in a special type of immune fighting cell, and it's at very very low levels. And in fact, the stand when when a person with HIV on treatment goes along to his doctor, his or her doctor, um, the routine tests you use, you, you couldn't pick up the virus. But if we use slightly more sensitive tests, the virus is always there, and it's hiding in about in a, in a particular kind. A cell, what we call it, a T cell, a resting T cell, and about one in a million of these resting T cells are infected. It goes into hiding, um, but, but but it can always come out at any time. So basically, as soon as someone stops their drugs, the virus can pop out from any of these you know very infrequent cells, and the whole process gets going again. That's something called latency. Many many viruses have what's called a latent form or a form where it can go into hiding.
2: Professor Lewin it's uh, Dr Crystal here um, I was on World AIDS Day I was reading some of the statistics around um, HIV infection in Australia and while I was really um, pleased to see that because of the effectiveness of drugs that progression from HIV to AIDS is actually quite a rare occurrence in Australia I was actually quite shocked to see that the um, the newly diagnosed HIV infection, HIV infection rates in Australia are actually quite high, That that's 1200 people a year, high compared to say um, 15 years ago when it was almost half that so um so w- what 's being done about um uh, HIV prevention uh, in Australia?
4: you're right. Um, the, the numbers of infections in Australia per year are incre- actually slowly increasing over the last decade, um, and now about 1,300. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, it's increased testing, which I think is a good thing, um, and there should be you know, in, even even more testing. Anyone who could potentially be at risk of HIV, um, largely men who are sex with men, or have, having had an unsafe sexual contact, you know, should be tested for HIV. The more we test, the more we find. Um, And uh, there is some, we we think that there's about 10,000 people in Australia that that don't actually know that they actually have the virus. Mm. So, um, while you don't, if you don't know you have the virus, there's a risk of of transmission. And so, um, there's on, on, you know, the most important thing is to get tested. The most important thing is still be aware HIV is a problem and that, you know, safe sex is the way to prevent acquisition in a country like Australia. There's a lot of um, effort now to really try and reduce the number of new infections. And in fact, after the conference, every minister from every state across Australia signed what we call the AIDS 2014 legacy, or a, or a goal to achieve what we call the virtual elimination of new infections by 2020. And the way we want to do that is by really increasing the testing and over the next few years um, we should be able to make it much 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 simpler for people to be tested using these new rapid tests where you basically get to get a test, you know in a result in about 30 minutes and, and, and with home based testing now as soon as someone is diagnosed as positive, um, the next step is to go on to treatment um, that's also been a slightly controversial area, still is a bit controversial do you wait till there's some um, evidence of immune damage or do you start treatment straight away and it's only recently um, early this year that we um, the government approved prescribing anti-HIV drugs for someone as soon as they become infected so if we increase testing increase treatment and increase, um, you know, safe sex and um, ways of preventing transmission sexually, that, you know, we could make a real impact on the numbers of new infections and with the overall goal of getting to zero, actually, one day.
3: Professor Lewin, it's Dr Catherine here. Uh, Just going back on uh, your point earlier about looking for a cure for HIV, um, I'm really interested in this concept uh, of using bone marrow transplantation uh, and, and looking at certain factors in the bone marrow which are a mutation to do with HIV and the potential that may have in looking for a cure for HIV. Is that something we're actively researching at the moment? Yeah,
4: a lot of interest on that um, approach came from a very famous um, case of, of, of a man by the name of Timothy Brown, who received a bone marrow transplant while HIV positive. He had to have the transplant because he had leukemia. Um, transplants are actually, you know, pretty, um, pretty, pretty invasive. Uh, treatments about twenty five percent mortality with a transplant. He had to have a transplant for his leukemia, and he received a transplant from a. Thank you donor who was carried a mutation that made that person naturally resistant to HIV and that happened back in 2009 Timothy Brown's been off treatment now for um, over five years and there's no virus found anywhere so that, that that case in itself gave people tremendous hope that you know a cure was possible now that hasn't yet been replicated um, there was an earlier um, about 18 months ago the report of two other patients. We actually know that if you receive a transplant from a donor, a regular donor, who doesn't carry this very rare mutation, transplantation does seem to get rid of or lower the amount of virus that goes into hiding. Um, there were two cases from Boston that were reported to do that. There were a couple of cases from Sydney reported earlier this year. But what we know is even when the virus goes, in, goes the amount of virus in hiding re- reduces dramatically And the Boston patients when they stop treatment the virus did come back. It came back later than the usual time of about two to three weeks. It came back at about 12, patient at 12 weeks, one at 32 weeks. So, the virus, so transplantation is very, very interesting. Um, it clearly does something to the amount of virus that goes into hiding. It's, a, it's an intervention we would never contemplate in someone who is otherwise well with HIV on treatment because of the associated toxicities. But as patients with HIV live longer, um, malignancy is common in people with HIV. And when, the, when they do actually have... The need a transplant for another reason. Um, it is a, an area of um, of great interest. For so many, many groups around the world are studying these patients. Should the opportunity arise, the other approach is to try and mimic it in monkey models and and really understand what transplantation is doing to wipe out those that you know the, the amount of virus that goes into hiding, and those those that work happening as well.
0: Mm. Now, Sharon, before we let you go, actually, what time is it? over there in Mexico?
4: Uh, it's pretty civilised, it's about um, quarter past six oh. um, in the evening, we oh, no. head out, you know, for dinner. <laughs> out for dinner. for dinner
0: Well, before we let you go, I, I just wanted to ask you to comment a bit on the new Doherty Institute that you're the director of. I, I took a tour of that place when it was still being built and I remember seeing some very, very big heavy doors. What kind of stuff do you do in that building?
4: Yeah, so it's this. The Institute a, a brand new institute on the corner of um, Grattan Street and Royal Parade. Uh, 11-storey building, about 700 um, staff. We're all working on infection and immunity, and it brings together people working on on, on infections like HIV, hepatitis, influenza, TB, and even um, in diseases like Ebola. Um, it brings together basic researchers, clinical researchers and public health labs you know, with an overall goal of tackling you know, infectious diseases that are of greatest significance um, in the world and added to that we've got some incredible facilities there that are, that are new for Melbourne, actually new for Australia, one of them being the high security quarantine lab um, which is the lab that you sort of see people working in spacesuits in and that's the lab that um, when we test for Ebola it's done in, in that Lab. It's called a level four containment lab. So, amazingly enough um, that was only completed um, uh, in December last year. So pretty incredible that that was all built and then, and then Ebola came along. There are other. There are other um, PC4 labs in Australia. One down in Geelong, but not. that it, it's specifically designed to, for human samples and human testing.
0: Mm. Well, it's, it's an amazing new building. So um, good luck with the research there. And once again, congratulations on being named Melburnian of the Year. We'll send you a, a list shortly of things we'd like done. Um, that's a great accolade. <laughs> Enjoy your dinner over there in Thank Mexico and, and have safe travels. Thanks for talking to us.
4: Thanks a lot.
0: Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. That was Professor Sharon, Sharon Lewin of the University of Melbourne, the director of the Doherty Institute there on the corner. We're going to take a short break for some music, folks, and we'll come back and finish our news segment because we, um, we thought it was important to take that call. We weren't exactly sure when Sharon would be ringing us. So here's some music for you, and we'll be back in just a moment.
1: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. So, Dr.
2: Lauren, and, uh, coming back to your news article that was all about Fukushima, mm. um, one thing I'm always um, amazed to remind people is that the number of people who died due to direct radiation exposure during the Fukushima disaster is zero. Yeah. So, during that whole incident, I was completely
1: amazed that that no one actually mm. has. Um, had, there's no fatalities associated Should with that big incident. Big. Yeah, mm-hmm, definitely. Thing. Look, it is fascinating. We were just talking in the break about it and the fact that you know that the the actual uh, facility you know withheld throughout the earthquake that was before the tsunami. So the only reason and there was an issue was because of the tsunami and, you know, realistically a tsunami of that size, most mm. buildings are not going to have a chance. But yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because there is so much interest in research and research in just making sure that these places are as safe as they possibly can and I think this is quite well, interesting.
0: Always a danger though, isn't it? So Yeah,
1: withstanding a, a nine uh, magnitude,
2: magnitude nine earthquake, earthquake, it's amazing. Is I,
0: I wonder if there would be a building in Melbourne that would, mm. because our building's not made to that, you know, to which, deal with that sort of mm. threat because we simply don't have it here. And I, I'd be curious to know whether there is a building mm. in Melbourne that could actually handle that kind of energy release. Yeah, I
1: have no idea. Yeah,
0: be interesting. Mm. So,
1: anyway. We should get someone on one day that knows. Yeah.
0: Now, mm. uh, Dr. Lauren, uh, given radio, um, we're normally doing radio and you come in, your PJs and stuff, but <laughs> now barbecue day's here and people will be able to potentially see you. Did you need to run home and change? Well,
1: I think I might just run at the back door so yeah. that no one can see me.
0: <laughs> okay. Dr. Crystal, what news have you got for us?
1: Well, this um, this This week uh,
2: was quite an interesting week for auctions um, when asking the question, how much is a Nobel Prize worth?
0: Oh, yeah, (laughs) I saw that.
2: Because... uh James Watson, who uh, was awarded the Nobel uh, Prize for his role in discovering DNA's double helix uh, configuration and structure, sold his Nobel Prize at auction and became the first living Nobel laureate to ever do so.
0: Mm. Is he the nice one or the not nice one?
2: Well, one of the reasons it's speculated that James Watson (laughs) was selling his Nobel Prize is that um, he's actually had to resign from several of his directorships following some very controversial comments that he's Mm. made around uh, intelligence being related to race. Yeah, and um, and some uh, potentially uh, controversial comments about women in science.
0: Yeah, whereas and the reality there is, it's he's talking about his intelligence <laughs> related to racism.
2: Yeah. Potentially, <laughs> yeah. yes. So yeah. um, James Watson, quite a controversial character, controversial also in putting his um, medal up for auction. And so um, a lot of auctions, uh, medals have been auctioned in the past. For example, fr- uh, Francis Crick, who was the other co recipient of this Nobel Prize um, for the discovery of DNA. Structure. His family auctioned um, his Nobel Prize uh, after he had passed away, and um, it sold at auction for 2.3 million. And James Watson, being a very competitive scientist, actually wanted to make sure that his went for more. So he's quoted as saying that he was um, he was uh, very quite pleased to see that he actually raised uh, 4.8 million um, oh. when his medal was purchased by an anonymous uh, bidder. Um, and there has been some bit of a bit of chat on social media that maybe this anonymous buyer would actually etch Rosalind Franklin's name on the medal. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is a woman who made critical yeah. contributions to discovering the structure of DNA, but is often overlooked. Mm. Um, that would be which nice. Which that I thought would, would, would yeah. be quite funny, um, but I don't know if that's just a pure uh, Twitter gossip. Uh, but speaking of etchings, um, this year one of the oldest uh, known engravings has been uh, announced in a publication um, from some Australian scientists at ANU, some paleoanthropologists, because um, previously it was thought that this the oldest engravings made by modern humans were about 100,000 years old. But um, scientists at the ANU were actually looking at some uh, shells uh, that were that were ac- they were actually found in Java in Indonesia about 100 years ago. So they were kind of discovered in the 1890s and they've been just kicking around in a museum. And this guy um, was uh, just looking through um, digital photos of the shells mm-hmm. and he says that he almost fell off his chair when he looked at one and saw that it actually had these geometrical patterns, sort of zigzags, sort of engraved into it and and now they've done all the proper dating and analysis and no it wasn't just that someone on the on the um dig got bored and engraved it themselves like they've, um, <laughs> they've actually verified that the that the etchings and the scratching on the shelves are actually of the age of the of the shells and so now they think that these um these these uh, doodles were made by a uh, homo erectus maybe five hundred thousand years ago wow. which greatly extends the whole idea of how long uh, humans have been uh, doing
1: art
3: yeah.
1: and especially if it's like a gym pattern. It's not something, you know, you could argue maybe they were just eating out of the shell and they scratched it with a stick or something, but it sounds like it's more like for for art's sake.
2: Maybe, Mm -hmm. but there's always this question around um, Homo erectus' consciousness and capacity, and is it that humans were actually mindlessly scribbling before they actually developed the cultural kind of communication and symbolism of of Mm. art? Anyway, it's an interesting question, but it also now extends the The range range. of um, Mm. humans being artistically active um, in our record
0: very very cool yeah you wonder because they could also just be looking at um, I mean there's a whole lot of crystal formations and various things that mm. have really unusual and extraordinary shapes and you know you wonder you know, see they see these things yeah. and then they want to replicate there's, there's, there's a lot of possibilities but I,
2: I just also love the idea that that, that um, there was a, there was a Eureka moment when someone mm-hmm. was looking at some Old photographs the shelf. yeah <laughs> but they've just been kicking around in a yeah. museum for hundreds yeah. of years but they can still tell us things about human mm. development and civilization and this is why museums are so valuable, and mm-hmm. the collections that we have can still unearth new knowledge today.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of that going on. I think there was another new dinosaur just recently that mm-hmm. was, is you know, being tested at the moment that was also just a bone found in a museum somewhere in the UK. Mm-hmm. There's heaps of this going on, so it's, it's interesting. Dr Catherine, what do you go for us?
3: Thank you, Dr Shane. So there was a really interesting study published this week. Uh, it was published online in the Journal of Pediatrics, and it's a reminder about the dangers associated with SIDS. So to give you a little bit of background to this, story, Um, SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, We don't know a lot about it, but there are certainly um, modifiable risk factors associated with SIDS, and some of those are around the environment in which an infant sleeps. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there are strong uh, guidelines recommending that young infants don't sleep in environments that have loose bedding or pillows, um, sleep skins, those sort of, and, and comforters. So this study was interested in looking at the proportion of infants that, did sl- or that do sleep in those hazardous environments. So it was a very large study, uh, surveyed people from 1993 to 2010, mm-hmm. and over that time they annually surveyed a random sample of, of people um, using the telephone, and almost 20,000 people were surveyed, so it was a very large study. And they were asking nighttime caregivers whether the infants or children under the age of eight months had regularly slept in this environment over the previous two weeks. And the findings are really astounding. So over the time, from 1993 to 2010, the rates of children sleeping in this um, dangerous environment have declined, which is really good. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most steady decline was over the 90s, and then it has really plateaued off since 2000. Back in 1993, almost 90% of infants were sleeping in this Dangerous environment, wow. which is a, a huge proportion. Uh, and whilst the rates have declined now in, in 2010, uh, the rates are 50%. That's still a very high that's rate. Huge. Yeah, yeah. It's huge. It's a great concern.
0: Mm. I, I would have thought you were going to say 5% or mm. something, you know, mm. given, given that 17 years of yeah. you know pushing against this. Yeah. And, mm.
3: it, and it seems, um, it's a strange finding. I was very surprised at that. The study didn't look at the reasons why infants were sleeping mm. in that manner. And certainly the researchers hypothesise and there have been some other studies around this area uh, that they believe that the carers' beliefs have a big part to play. Okay. Um, and particularly the, the, some of the previous studies have found that carers feel like uh, the infants are more are warm, they sort of can prevent falls with being patted by pillows and mm. things and that's one of the reasons. Uh, but the rates are still very high. Mm. They did look at the predictors or the characteristics of infants who were sleeping in this dangerous environment and they found that there were independent and strong risk factors. Uh, the highest risk factor was the age of the mother. So, if mothers were under the age of twenty, that that placed the infant. Right. Or, the, the generally, there was a higher risk associated with that. Uh, also, the education of the parents. So, if they had high school or university education, uh, reduced or was uh, was less associated with okay. with, mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think for me, it's a really interesting finding in the fact that we have very good evidence, and this evidence has been really um, brought from the nineties and early two thousand about a, a way to prevent SIDS, which is an absolutely devastating condition, and we have good evidence about it, an easy risk factor to change yet what actually rea- re- happens in reality in clinical pa- practice is far from it and um, as a healthcare researcher it's one of our challenges in looking is looking at how we can bridge that gap between mm. evidence and, and what happens in in reality
0: yeah it's, sim- it's simple stuff too it's Absolutely. not you know we're not talking about you know needles or mm. vaccines or other stuff that's sometimes more challenging to get across to people but this is just you know don't don't let them lie in these conditions because there's a chance it'll be bad
1: so i've got, I've got quite a few friends that have got young children or you know are about to become mothers soon and and it seems like there's so much information that they're given i wonder if maybe that's the thing you know that maybe it needs to be about a communication sort of discussion you know what making sure that we make really clear which things are very important top five yeah exactly because it seems to be you know they're obviously getting the information from their healthcare providers but also from family and friends and google and you know the newspapers and there's a lot of yeah so whether it's yeah needs to be highlighted that this is actually a proven thing and we need to make sure that they're aware of that yeah. absolutely
3: and there was an editorial published uh, the following day in bmj following this this research article being released and and they were looking at the focus of potentially gps delivering that mm. message and whether they're the most appropriate healthcare mm. providers um, mm. but you're right there's so much information uh at the time you know leading up to the birth of the child and in that mm. first year it, it's challenging to prioritize yeah. it mm. you
0: wonder whether people selling cots and stuff like that would be better at providing that information. You know, when you buy the stuff that actually is potentially causing the problem, you know, the mattress, all that stuff, maybe that's, mm. a, that's a time when you might be more open to other information about health as mm. opposed to when you go to a GP or a, a parenting class and mm. they give you a million things, mm. you know, get these uh, these companies selling the stuff to maybe help out. It's mm-hmm. not, not not saying it's their responsibility, just to, to help out. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. And it, sort of about 10 years ago, one of the campaigns around SIDs was actually looking at the way those companies that sell Actually, advertise and, mm. and a lot of the photos associated with advertising were actually um, showing infants with pillows and, and all the rockets sending absolutely yeah. the wrong message. Yeah. Um, and in the similar thing in magazines, so that was targeted a while ago. But yeah, absolutely, you could it take it one step so- further and look at them pro- promoting the right message. Yeah,
0: mm. well, I'm going to go from babies to rockets, <laughs> folks. I
3: don't
0: know, I have to, to say that uh, there's <laughs> babies in space. Um, but Dr. Shane is back in uh, those of you who are long time listeners of the show, really. I pretty much watched every shuttle launch, Mm -hmm. every one, which, and amazingly, I'm still married, um, (laughs) because a lot of them happened to be at, like, 3 a.m., but it was one of the things I did, and this week, we saw the launch of the Orion craft, which is essentially, I I call it, you know, the Apollo brother, so... (laughs) Yeah, it's been a long time since we've done any serious space exploration with actual humans in, in craft. We've done heaps of robotic stuff, and we've talked about that a lot. There's been heaps. But uh, this week, uh, NASA launched the first test flight of their Orion capsule and on top of um, one of the big Delta IV heavy rockets. And if you, if you didn't see it, it basically looks like three rockets strapped together. Mm-hmm. It's massive. And um, took it basically the furthest that a, a craft of this type, has been in 42 years mm-hmm. so to give you an idea most of the stuff we do at the moment in terms of human space exploration is in what I would call just outside the atmosphere Earth orbit mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this uh, to give you an idea where this craft went, it went to a distance that is 15 times the height of the International Space Station. So that is a, you know that is seriously deep space. It means you have to go through um, the Van Allen belts, which are the radiation belt or the, the radiation belt that surrounds the Earth. That's some serious radiation. Um, so it was a good test for the for the craft. I mean, it wasn't uh, didn't have any humans on board, but it is the craft that will take them potentially back to the Moon and then on to Mars. Um, the re-entry uh, was, you know, uh, another another point in in the craft's um, trip that is particularly nasty. You know, about four thousand degrees. The plasma that builds up around the craft is at about four thousand degrees, which is pretty nasty. And the bit I like is um, when it came back and it splashed down. You know, um, it was a bit off target by one mile. Wow, get that's that? Amazing. Was that 1.7 kilometers or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know, it flew three, over 3,600 miles up, mm-hmm. came back down one mile off target. Amazing. What are you guys doing, NASA? <laughs> Get your act together! Um, I mean, that, that, that is literally landing on a pinhead yeah. after parachuting out of a plane. Mm-hmm. It is amazing stuff. So
3: the thing that amazed me with that landing was actually watching the parachutes as it came mm. back down into the Pacific Ocean. And I believe the parachutes are about the size of a football field, yeah, they're so huge. they're mm. they're, yeah. they're very very big. It's yeah. surprising to see.
0: Yeah. It's-
3: how, so how long was it actually up there?
0: So, like, not, not that long. Yeah. I think it was about four hours or something, not, yeah. not a huge amount of time. Okay. But um, but the main thing is, what they managed to do is test a, quite a number of things all in one mm. go. So, they tested several stages of the rocket launch system. They tested the capsule, its capacity to work through the Van Allen radiation belts, mm-hmm. then its capacity to detach, to come back down, to splash down correctly, to go through the re entry process, you mm. know, all of these things. So, in terms of one launch, they actually mm. tested a lot of stuff, and you've got to remember this is NASA's return to deep space exploration with humans, mm-hmm. so had this gone wrong, it would have been a major, major hit, and we would have gone back to, let's just use robotic um, exploration, because it's the only way we can really do things
2: so, so this test was unmanned, but the future is that it will be manned. Unhuman. Unhuman. sorry, oh, no. <laughs> I know I
0: know, me yeah. correcting you I
2: know, this was, it was unpersoned, <laughs> unpersoned. There, was, there, was no, there was no humans present yeah, Not
0: even a dog No <laughs> <laughs>
2: but so, when will it start carrying people
0: well there's a few stages still to go, but the the main the main elements of um, this test are, are done now, so i 'm not sure whether the next iteration does or not uh, the The big one has to go on a, a different rocket too that has to be designed, so I suspect they 'll test that first mm. and then and then move on to human trials but it's um, it 's in, incredible stuff i mean mm. this is um, i mean' it'd be amazing to to go back to the moon and then on to Mars I think, but mm. it is seriously scary stuff getting to mars it's um, it 's a long way out so mm. yeah. Now, we're uh, we're getting behind schedule, folks. we better play some music and, uh, and, and come back to Dr. Lauren. She's prepared something for us.
1: You are listening to a podcast from
2: Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
0: Now, uh, Dr. Lauren, you have something for us. I mean, you. you uh, I should mention on there you were so helpful to me during the week. I'll tell Dr. Crystal and Dr. Catherine this story, but I, I emailed Dr. Lauren. I said, I have a friend who may be concerned about becoming long-sighted. You know, you can't read stuff that's close. What are the symptoms? And her response was, your arms are getting too short. (laughs) You know, to hold the book out.
2: I believe her. She's uh, an optometrist, isn't she? Yep, exactly.
0: Very helpful. Yeah. And I thought, well, my friend might not be happy to hear that. (laughs) Because he actually has very long arms.
1: Yeah, I th- that's true. He may also need some reading glasses, though, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> Might now, be time. what are you going to tell us about?
1: Well, I um, was really interested in this study I was reading this week about... Um, it's actually about fungus. So, mm. But the, the reason I found it very interesting is it's a, an example of this way that research is moving where we're having these really large-scale international collaborations. So this particular project um, had basically a collaboration all around the world. So it was based in Estonia but had sites from uh, 365 different places around the world to look at fungus in in more detail. And so um, we all know, look, fungus is um, one of the the kingdoms which is very prolific. So they estimate anywhere between 100,000 to up to millions of different species of fungi exist in the world. And lots that we've never even discovered yet. That's it, exactly. And this is the real issue because, you know, we we know it's really important. So fungi help to break down things in the soil, are good for decomposition. There's obviously issues. Issues with it, though, so fung- fungus can um, infect food crops, and we have issues on that side of things. But as um, Dr. Crystal rightly says, that the trick is that we actually often only see these fungi when they're flowering. So mushrooms, for example, we only see them when the bits pop up above the soil, and there are billions or millions of different other things happening that we can't see. And so this study actually, like I said, got together scientists from all around the world and included um, eight scientists from Australia as well, from the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, uh, University of Tasmania, University of Southern Queensland and James Cook University. And what they've actually done is taken samples from 365 sites on every continent of the planet apart from Antarctica. And what they did is looked at different types of forests, different types of, of settings. And what they did is actually took a soil sample and then they got it down to just a couple of grams. And from these um, you know, f- small samples, they were actually able to generate over 2.5 million DNA sequences. Mm. And that just wow. sounds absolutely overwhelming for me as a researcher. The idea of having that much data just scares me. But um, the good news with, with fungus is that there's actually a, a section of the DNA that they call the barcode, and it's actually specific to different species of fungi. So they could, rather than having to sequence the whole amount of DNA. They know exactly where they're looking. And so this has allowed them to to process this data quite quickly. And what they've actually been able to find is just from those small samples, looking at just just 365 different spots, they've got almost 50,000 different species of fungi in in those samples alone. So it it really is giving a lot of evidence to the fact that there are so many more species than we we thought probably.
0: Are they... uh you know this stuff sort of uh, evolves pretty quickly yeah, yeah. you know and I, and I wonder you know will they if they look a year later will they they find it all or is it just part of are they just taking a snapshot in that sort of evolutionary
1: yeah, process
0: I, of fungi developing
1: I think that's a really good point I think it's, it's definitely a snapshot it's just a much better snapshot than we've been able mm. to done before because before it was you would do a snapshot by walking along and saying oh that's a pretty mushroom let's, mm. let's you know mm. get that whereas now at least we can get underneath and see what's happening yeah. but it's um, it's pretty interesting interesting because what they the reason that they were doing it all around the world is really to look at the diversity and and you know why they're different species in different parts and it's always been thought that it's just to do with the plant diversity right. so you know it depends yep. on what plants are there is, is what fungi you'll have as well and they're actually finding that that's not the case it's more to do with the distance from the equator so it's things to do with um, you know, the pH of the soil the average rainfall the temperature so it's actually that that fungi are probably a little bit more self-sufficient than we thought mm. they were okay which is quite interesting Interesting, and so this is um, going to help them to be able to have a more a better understanding of what is in which part of the world, and you know, things like you know, if we're worried about fungi with crops. You know, what what fungi should we be we worried about in certain parts of the world?
0: Presumably, it's an absolute necessity, though, in those ecosystems. I mean, For sure. it, it's always that thing where we say, okay, yes, um, maybe it is specific to distance from the equator, mm. but the reality is. If we are changing the climatic conditions, yeah. do, do we have to do fungi transplants? Yeah, that's yeah. What I'm, I'm thinking. No,
1: it's it's an excellent point because it's something that you know we don't think about them. Like you know, when you walk on the soil, you don't think about everything that's going on underneath. And mm. and the the the, the real the reality is, if it's not there, then yeah, the, our, our world isn't going to function properly. And this is one of the issues as well with you know some of the chemical agents that are used to sort of try and treat some of these things. You know, unfortunately, they're not specific enough just to target the one pest. Yeah. <laughs> fungus, mm. Mm. it's actually going to affect all of the other ones as well. Indeed. And I think it's really important to talk
2: about um, the value of maintaining the biodiversity in mm. that area because we're losing species faster than we can discover them. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things about fungi the fung- and, and that family is that they're actually an amazing source for drug discovery. Mm. Like some of these um, uh, mushrooms and funguses and, and you know throughout the whole kingdom make amazingly unique small molecules that have biological activity, not just as a Toxin, but also in some circumstances can be used as a medicine. And so, mm. when you when you start talking about well, why is biodiversity important? Mm. It's also got a really important health aspect in terms of the fact that we can um, study these uh, these fungi to discover new molecules mm. that have potential mm. for all kinds mm. of human therapeutic mm. applications. That because they're just such unique, diverse
0: species. Yeah, certainly cool stuff. Now we should mention uh, that you and I were an event last night, mm-hmm. Dr. Lauren, which is why we were together 12, 12 hours ago. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> people are starting to talk. Uh, you know, we're both
0: married, but hey. You know. um, now, it was um, part of the other film festival mm-hmm. and we were lucky enough to see and then have a panel discussion regarding the film Fixed, mm-hmm. which was, uh, it's a one-hour film and it's all about, I guess how would you describe it? It's, a, it's about um, things like prosthetic limbs, mm-hmm. um, uh, people who are in wheelchairs and the challenges they face, Mm-hmm. The various attributes of um, people in our society that have challenging conditions yes. to deal with, whether that be cerebral palsy or whether it be um, yeah, due to an accident, study. physical, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. blindness, deafness, all yep. of these things, and what, and what that means to them and, and mm-hmm. what, what science is going on. It was an outstanding oh, movie yeah. um, and a great panel discussion, I think.
1: Oh, for sure. Look, it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic. So the, the movie is really about this whole idea of, uh, you know, not everyone wants some of these medical devices that are available so you know there's definitely a lot of exciting things going on but you know having that choice of you know whether or not they people want to pursue technology and the other question i found fascinating that came up from it was you know how far do we go in our quest for human perfection you Mm. know if we can make people run faster and everyone else everyone decides to do that except for 10 people then they can't keep up you know do they get forced into getting those same prosthetic legs you know it's a a that
0: that part was interesting for Because yeah. I'm, 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 you know, an Essendon supporter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's in any way related. So, were they talking
2: about bionics and? Yeah, um, there
0: was a lot about bionics, and mm. and um and it was there was one guy who uh, he 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 had an accident when he was in his twenties, and so had um, prosthetic legs. Mm. But he also works at MIT for a company that makes bionic limbs, mm. and he's very much uh, for not making them look like human limbs. It, mm. You know, when you look at him, you can clearly see that he has a mechanical structure mm. connected to what remains of his legs. Mm. And you know, he, he's quite proud of that. So it's a very different perspective um, yeah. from him than that normal sort of it needs to look like a, a human limb sort of yeah. thing. So it, it, it was an excellent film, really. Yeah. And is it well. showing
2: to the general public?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think, I think um, it will be something you'll be... Uh, something you'll be uh, I'd Google it. And, yeah, and, Google and Fix, a definitely. But, um, good fi- Fix. Yeah, it's a great film.
1: And the the film festival that we was on the the Mm. other film festival is still going today so if anyone gets a chance to head down it's at the Melbourne Brain Centre absolutely brilliant films um, looking at all different types of questions around abilities and Mm. how do people use what they have and it's a fascinating area
0: really interesting now we're going to have to hand over in a second thank you Dr Lauren pleasure good to see you good to see you too Dr Crystal see you again soon and thank you very much for coming in Dr Catherine it's great to have you thank you very much Liv, thanks for tweeting over there in the corner. She's been very quiet today.
2: (laughs) Not on the Twitter, she hasn't. No,
0: I bet not. I'm Dr Shane. We're going to hand over now. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.